I am sure you have already heard, but it is worth repeating. The Supreme Court nominee is Amy Coney Barrett. Let's talk about filling that seat. I also want to categorize something as a conspiracy theory. We'll do that on today's Corey Truax Show. Live from my kitchen table here in Easley, South Carolina, because that's actually where I record the show, if you want a visual of how that works. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk or wherever you find the podcast. I am grateful when you do. On the show, we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk. I endeavor to give that to you from week to week. We will endeavor to do that again in just a moment. I also get the honor of serving as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood meets at 1030 on Sunday morning in Greenville, South Carolina, and you, yes, you, are invited. I have uh, I had a conversation, I think is the best way to say that, that revealed to me one of the ways in which left and right are communicating past each other, and I want to get into that at some point today. I'm going to categorize something that's said in media a lot. It has to do with the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm going to categorize it as a conspiracy theory because it has all of the evidence of a, Q- a QAnon conspiracy or a a Sandy Hook conspiracy. So I want to get to that, but of course we must start here. The President of the United States came out last Friday and came out with Amy Coney Barrett, someone who I've been a fan of for now, I guess, three three years and a little bit longer than that. I was I was early to the Amy Coney Barrett party as wanting her on the first, the, the federal courts, the circuit courts, and then uh, well, she was, she was my pick. I mean, I, if I can't have Mike Lee or like Ted Cruz on the Supreme Court... She was that, of all the conventional picks, she was the one that I wanted. And so I, I've i been getting all of the arguments, seeing all of the rancor, and I just want to respond to them piece by piece, including the uh, the idea that it's hypocritical to, to fill the seat. I know we talked about that some last week, but now that we're a week into this process, I got some things I want to say. So let's talk about it. Number one. I I started with some folks on the left I was seeing on Twitter and on some comment threads that apparently Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a dying wish that the the next president fill her seat. I don't know that anything could matter more. Excuse me, could matter less. There is, it's not her seat. And it's, it's, John Roberts' seat doesn't belong to him. Antonin Scalia's seat doesn't belong to him. They belong to us. All nine of those seats belong to the American people. It's not her property. She can't bequeath it to anybody. And so there's, there isn't any reason for any of us to put any care whatsoever into a, a final wish of someone who held a government position. That's not how any of this works. And so it shouldn't matter one bit in any direction from either side. What happens if... Well, Antonin Scalia's final wish was that we... we Overturn Roe versus Wade. Pick that. Or, so do, do we do it now? Because it was a final wish of his? Of course we don't. It's not rational. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. It has nothing to do with the law. So that's one thing I heard. Is, don't you want to respect the woman's dying wish? I mean, no. She, she wished for something that's not in her purview or not in her authority to wish. She might as well have wished to be president or wished to reinstall uh, Woodrow Wilson from the dead. She, she made a she made a wish that she has no right to, to want. So, or at least no, no right for it to be filled. So that's number one. Number two, the, the Democrats have a choice to make. 
because uh, these things come up on October 12th. We're going to have the Judiciary Committee. Uh, those four days they always do of witness testimony, and then there'll be some questioning uh, of Amy Coney Barrett. She'll give her testimony. So there is a decision to make for Democrats between now and then. Do you want to go after this woman, a, a, a seemingly just high-integrity, good, decent human being, a, a generous a generous person from a generous family, raising an, raising a big family, adopted some kids. She, uh, you're talking about the the stuff that people care about. I, I wish we cared about these things less, but the categorization of people that she's a working mom. That's that's supposed to be a big deal, right? We we did that with Maisie Hirono, I think it was, or maybe it was Tammy Duckworth. Either Maisie Hiro- either senators Maisie Hirono or Tammy Duckworth became the first sitting senator in uh, U.S. history to have a baby. And so it was like a big deal, like, you know, working woman having a baby, and she's in the Senate. All right, well, now we have that on the Supreme Court. Like, there's just so much of the, the stuff that this culture seems to care about that you're supposed to really like her. She's, she's eminently likable, but also eminently qualified. They have to make a choice. Do we try to go after her like we did Kavanaugh and just, just lie and try to destroy someone over the, the, the left's value of the Supreme Court, which is religious? It's a religious-level value. That do they, do they try to destroy her, or do they make complaints about the process? Do they make what strategy do we go after? Do we go after her, or do we go after the hypocrisy of the process that Merrick Garland never got a vote, that the election is coming up too soon? Which one should we do? And I think they're going to go after the process, but I, I want to do this. I, I have seen and even laughed at all of the stuff the folks on the left have been sharing, making fun of Republican senators for their flip-flopping. They all have changed their minds. Yeah, that's true. They had Merrick Garland sitting there for 10, for 10 months or nine months, whatever it was, and didn't vote, saying they don't have to. And now they're saying, yeah, this is constitutionally bound. Oh, yeah, every one of them is a hypocrite. You know, Lindsey Graham's the only one that even has a decent argument. I don't even agree with his argument. His argument was, yeah, I, I said that then, and then Brett Kavanaugh happened. What you guys did to Brett Kavanaugh changed my mind. I know this is a war, and so I, I changed my position. All right, I guess. I'm, not, I'm still not on board, but at least you have some reason. So I, I think it's important to recognize that the hypocrisy goes every direction here. So I want you to recognize that for every meme that's out there about Republicans flip-flopping on this, just go over to some right-wing site and you'll find the same thing. You'll find Chuck Schumer saying that there absolutely should be a vote. It's the most normal thing ever. The most normal thing there is is for there to be a vote. Every time there's been a vacancy on the Supreme Court, literally for the history of our republic, what do presidents do? They put forward a nominee. That's the normal thing to do. Now, the other normal thing to do would be to vote on the nominee. And Republican senators didn't do that. The, the, the most normal thing that can happen in this situation is a president nominates and a Senate votes. That's the most normal thing. And, and the standard thing, it's also what should be. And what should have happened is Merrick Garland should have been nominated, as he was, the president, president Obama did his job, and then Republican senators should have voted him down. And now equally, the right thing to do is for the president, whoever the president is, it just happens to be this person right now, should put someone forward. 
And the right thing to do is the, is the Senate to vote, to give, that Senate, to give that nominee a vote. And this time, she should be voted in the, in the affirmative. She should be confirmed to the Supreme Court. Why? Because Merrick Garland isn't a textualist, a textualist or originalist. Merrick Garland is a judicial activist. He, he believes in the left-wing version of judicialism. It's, it's, an, it's a super legislature where the judiciary gets to rule over all things. And so, no, you should be voted down. What should have happened at that time, the right thing at the time, is Mitch McConnell should have taken Merrick Garland, put him on the floor, voted him down, and then we say to President Obama, you are welcome to send us another nominee. And then President Obama should have done that because that's his job. Here's another nominee. All right, let's vote on that one. And if it's not, if you didn't send us a textualist and you didn't send us an originalist, no, we're voting no. And then you, I don't care if you did that once a month, the entire last year of the Obama term. That's what should have happened. Now that fact, the fact that it didn't happen doesn't mean you have two wrongs make a right. Not giving this woman a vote before January 20th is the wrong. There's plenty of time before January 20th. That's when the president stops being the president or he starts a second term. So do the very normal thing. This is just the very normal thing to do. Presidents nominate, senators vote. Happens to be right now, there would be the votes in the Senate to confirm, at least it looks that way. I had another thought related to this. There is some chance, don't tune me out here if you're a, a big Republican conservative person, there is some chance of political backfire on this that you, you get this giant win for your base. And some people who would go vote for Trump because of the judges actually feel satisfied. They actually feel safe. Because whatever Trump and or excuse me, Biden and Harris might try to do to you, you've now got a court that might defend you and you feel a little safer from what the, or the, the predations of the left. There, and there also might be some political backlash of firing up the other side. To the extent that this, for all we know, this is uh, filling the seat is what causes Trump to lose. Let's go with that scenario really quick. And while I, I'm indifferent towards that, I know for some people that'd be a very big deal. I thought through this. Let's say this is like a really, it's a disaster for Republicans politically. Let's just pretend it is for a minute. And they get just whipped, shellacked in November because of putting this person on the seat. Let me say this really clearly. It would be utterly worth it. If I were even on that team, the Trump team, that's what I would be saying. No matter the consequences, getting this Supreme Court seat, replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Coney Barrett, I'll lose the next five presidential elections for that switch. For that? Oh, man. Because we've decided, the left did it, they turned the court into the most powerful branch of government, and so this is, it's very important to replace a Ruth Bader Ginsburg with an Amy Coney Barrett, and it's to, it would be totally worth the risk to get her confirmed. And it made me think back to another political risk, and I want to share this, uh, this comparison with you. The last big political risk was March 23rd, 2010. I remember this vividly because I was so much more involved with these things at the time. That is the day that President Barack Obama signed the Affordable Care Act, March 23, 2010. It was only, what's that, eight months later, that November, Democrats suffered the largest midterm election lost in the history of the United States of America. They lost the Senate. If, if they didn't lose the Senate, they lost it uh, just a couple, four years later. But I think they lost the Senate that day. They lost the House because they lost, get this, 63 House seats. Big midterm elections are when you lose like 
20 seats, 25 seats, 63 seats. And then I think I've told you before, they lost 1,000 seats nationwide. When you count up all the state legislatures and governors and senators' house, they lost 1,000 seats over the Affordable Care Act. And look what they got. They got the Affordable Care Act. They sacrificed their political uh, viability on that. And it's a, a thing that barely helped anybody. We spent a ton of money on helping a few people. It's, it's decently popular. It's, it's not overwhelmingly popular in the, in the country. And it barely, again, it barely helped. It, it was supposed to be this giant healthcare overhaul, and the healthcare system is still reprehensibly terrible. And that's what they sacrificed their political power on. They got a bunch of power, and they used it to do this dinky little thing called the, the Affordable Care Act, and it cost them a lot. If Republicans, that, if that team of people, if they get a Supreme Court justice, and particularly this trade-off, Ruth Bader Ginsburg for Amy Coney Barrett, man, I can't, I can't tell you how, how worth it that would be to get that kind of payoff for your risk. I'm going to save it. I have another point about this, but we need to take a break. When we come back, I have one more thought about how filling, filling this seat is reminding me of how, of how much politics is, is becoming more like religion uh, and then I want to talk about that one narrative out of the Black Lives Matter movement that I want to qualify, or qu- not qualify or quantify. The word is classify. Classify as a conspiracy theory. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for being here. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Find me there and... You can follow along and submit things to the show if you are so inclined. You can send me emails as well at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com if you ever want to respond to the nonsense coming out of my mouth. I'm just kidding. All right, let's do this. Talking about Supreme Court stuff, that the right thing to do in the normal thing to do is vote on Amy Coney Barrett. The same way that Merrick Garland should have been voted on and voted down, that's the right thing to do. And also noticing... The utter meltdown of the left. You probably saw that viral video of a woman who looks very much like your typical left-winger hysterically screaming in her car when she finds out Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. Not, not out of sadness over a woman lost, but because she feels a political consequence to it. And it is that, that meltdown, the high emotion of it, that reminds me how religious the Supreme Court has become. I thought I said that too about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. When you had that kind of insanity, folks driven to madness in their behavior, where I, I just recall we were at some point starting to get just absurd accusations from people not even tangentially related to Brett Kavanaugh in any way, and they were still being believed. We were at a spot with that group because it was so religious. It becomes an article of faith that 100,000 women could come out and say, Brett Kavanaugh assaulted me. And, there, and the left was going to believe every single one of them because their church, their religion was being affected, was being assaulted. And it reminds me of this. Folks on the right have started to treat the court that way a little too. But I think it's important to remember that that's in response to the left. 
the left decided about 50 years ago that, uh, and on purpose too, by the way. You can go back to the old, uh, not Weather Underground, I can't think of that other publication, but a super left-wing publication at the time. I am so upset that I can't remember it. I think the word citizen is in it. But they, they actually said this was on purpose. That the idea here was, uh, back during the Cold War, we had the Soviet Union, there was a group of Americans who wanted to install that Soviet-like leftism, giant government control over everything. And those articles were saying things like, we aren't going to get that through Congress. The American people, not enough of them, are going to install that on their own. But we, have the, we, can, we can have the courts. The, no one questions the courts. People respect our judicial system. And so on purpose, the courts go about being the, the weapon of the left. They did it. So I want to give that history lesson. I actually got way more response than I thought I was going to get from last week when I gave the history of how the United States was birthed. Well, you, you got to understand what the left did to the judicial system. There's, there's this weird thing I've, I feel like happened with Donald Trump for some people. It ended up being that history began the day he was inaugurated. Nothing happened before that. Nothing happened to give us a context in a world of rancor and partisanship. He did it all. The world began to spin upon his inauguration. And it brought in some people into politics that otherwise weren't into it. And they, don't, they know nothing of politics that happened before 2020. Maybe, I guess, 2016. Or they know very little. Or the old Ronald, Re- Ronald Reagan quote, it's not that they know so little, it's that they know so much that is not so. They are utterly sure of stuff, and the stuff they're sure of just isn't true. And so you, you come into this battle over the, over the judiciary thinking, then Republicans are being cutthroat about this. Oh, you have no idea. You have no idea the history of where all that comes from. The left turned the Supreme Court into a religious institution with almost supreme and total power, and that has caused the right to respond. That doesn't mean the right was right to respond, correct to respond in that way, but they have moved that direction in a good, a good bit. But here, here's what happened. The left, in, in, in getting judges on the Supreme Court and then being willing to not interpret the Constitution, but instead getting what they want. Let's get judges on there to just do what we want. We can't legislate it through Congress. We're going to get the courts to legislate for us. You start to do this to people. You start with... Everson versus the Board of Education. It was a New Jersey law that said that if, if you're, if you're going to use the school bus system to take your kid to a Catholic school, then you could, basically allowing that, allowing private school parents to use public school transportation. And some folks got upset about that in New Jersey, filed a lawsuit. By the way, they, they actually lost. The Supreme Court in 1946 said... Yeah, that doesn't violate anything, uh, separation of church and state, because those parents pay taxes. They're paying for the school buses. It just happens now the school bus is going to stop at a Christian school. Most of them are Catholic schools there. But it was in a minority opinion there that that incorrectly, the minority opinion incorrectly, what's the word I'm looking for? Quoted. Quoted a letter from Thomas Jefferson about the separation of church and state. There would be a wall of separation between church and state. And that... that moved on to start changing the lives of Americans, with, when, and they didn't have a say. They weren't able to decide as a collective if we want to change these things. As an example, 
that leads to things like Engel versus Vital. And Engel versus Vital, in the New York State of, I guess they call, I think they call that the Board of Regents. That's who runs the schools up there. They authorized a voluntary prayer. You, you can recite this prayer at the beginning of schools. I believe they left it up to each principal if, those, if they were going to do it. And so there was a, uh, a Christian prayer. It was it's definitely a Christian prayer being said before school every day. And you have a, a lawsuit in, I think, 1961 or 62. And prayer, the idea of, of sanctioned prayer gets taken out of schools because the left wanted it. The right didn't want it. And the right starts to feel like, but wait, hold on. I didn't get any say in that. We're just going to do it. We're just going to take this vestige of the American system and just take it out. Now, guys, granted, I'm not for prayer in schools. I don't want public schools teaching my kids religion. That's for me. I do that. The public school system doesn't. But you have to understand what you do to traditionalist Americans when you take it out of their hands. You take the power out of your hands and they just make their, the, the court makes the decision for them. It happened in the late 70s with Stone versus Graham, where in Kentucky you had uh, author, not authorization, you had a requirement to put a copy of the Ten Commandments in every, in every classroom. And the Supreme Court just says, no, you can't do that. And the people of Kentucky didn't get to decide. The American people didn't get to decide. It was just, if you have the Ten Commandments in your school anywhere, it's just gone. And maybe, maybe that's good. I'm not totally sure about that one. The Ten Commandments are a... They're a Christian document. They're a Jewish document. They're also a document of just of, of legal information. They're actually around. They're on Congress. They're posted on the Supreme Court. The Ten Commandments are are a religious thing. They're not just a religious thing. But the American people didn't get a say. We gave the courts the this power to make a decision for us, and we get no say in the matter. Something similar happened in the Lemon versus Kurtzman case. In Lemon versus Kurtzman. There's a couple states up north that provided some financial assistance to, to, to schools who were teaching Christian things. The, the, to Christian schools, again, mostly Catholic schools. There was some small help to pay for like textbooks, materials, uh, and even that law, the, limit, the, the law that Lemon versus Kurtzman struck down, said it, it was only going to help with materials that taught secular subjects. So the grants that a Catholic school might get from, I think it was Pennsylvania law, the, the grants that a, a school might get from Pennsylvania, they could only spend it on a biology book. They, can't, they couldn't go get a, bi, a, a Bible textbook for that. And that law comes along, and these, these states had these long-standing understandings and long-standing laws of being willing to help schools as they educate children. The Supreme Court just comes along and says, no, you can't do that. And the American people do look, and particularly on the right, go, wait, how did all this happen? How did you just change my world? And I got no say in it. How, do you, how did nine people, for that matter, not just nine, but five people, five out of nine can change the entire culture, can uproot the deep parts of our culture and just put them away? Well, that's not healthy, and it gets, gets kind of scary. And so then you, and the left did it. The left launched the assault on American institutions by using the courts as a cudgel, and then folks on the right started to respond. They started to feel the pressure of it. And the, and the right was late to the fight. Remember that they confirmed Ruth Bader Ginsburg an enemy of all liberties, except for abortion, the one, the one liberty, if you can call it that, that she liked. She's, she was against most, freedom, most freedoms of speech, freedom of religion, 
uh, the Second Amendment, freedom to defend yourself, freedom up to, of defending your own property in your home. She was a, she was a real radical. I don't know that she got any no votes. Maybe she got three or four no votes. And that was in the 90s that she was getting those votes. The right was very late to come to the party. It's one of those vestiges of the past where Republicans would basically always vote for a Democrat's nominee. They got giant votes for Clinton's nominees. Uh, In the Democratic president before that, I was thinking of Jimmy Carter got one nominee, I think. He got a big vote because Republicans were late to the battle. And if you go back looking at the voting records, when Reagan was putting up a Sandra Day O'Connor, or uh, you got, uh, I think he put up Anthony Kennedy as well, George H.W. Bush's nominees, Democrats don't vote for them. They're, they're willing to try to vote them down. Republicans just try to go along and get along. And the right came late to the, to the fight, and there's consequences. And I just gave you the cases there that have had consequences on religious liberty. The, the fact that the Supreme Court will regulate, the, the, they thought they could, political speech in terms of spending, what you can spend on a campaign. The threat that the Supreme Court is to your Second Amendment rights, your ability to defend yourself, because in one decision they could really dismantle your rights to for your for the Second Amendment. I have no fear of mentioning this. It is 1973 when the Supreme Court legalizes what has now been the death of 70 million children. This is one of our grossest national sins. And the American people know I got I had nothing to do with it. I just the just I think that was a six three decision. Just the six of you, you get to do that. You have that much power over all of our states, and then for that matter, to take that much power to the federal government that states can't states like a Wyoming, a North Dakota, a Montana, or a South Carolina because of something that happens in California or New York, we've got to change. The left did it. They turned courts into this unbelievably powerful weapon. And because for a a godless worldview, leftism is mostly a godless worldview, politics and government become God, then the Supreme Court becomes this this fixture of of political or religious power. And now, listen, there's some folks on the right that are behaving similarly, but it's because of all that I just told you. The left attacked... American institutions using the courts, and now the right is responding. Here would be the best thing. Make the Supreme Court weaker so we can all stop being so terrified of it. I said the same thing in 2016. People were so terrified of Hillary Clinton being president or terrified of Donald Trump being president. Some people were. I'm not, that might not be you. I'm not talking about everybody. But the, the, maybe the solution is maybe the president should be less powerful. I mean, if, if who has that position can terrify people, yeah, that's probably not the right amount of power for that position. We should rethink that. So I should talk with my big brother about this. He had an interesting idea of reform around the Supreme Court. Um, and I, I appreciate the, the realism of it because I'm maybe a little bit more of an idealist. But he just embraced the idea. Yeah, the, the, the Supreme Court's a political it's a political body, right? It's, it, it, we stopped having it as a, as a judicial body. It is purely political. We all know it is. And so what we should do is have four judges always re- reserved for re- Republican presidents or, or maybe the Republican Congress. Or Excuse me. The, con- the Republicans in Congress can pick their four judges. Democrats pick their four judges. 
And the chief justice is chosen by a super majority of Congress. So you have to get which, what is it, which, something that's impossible now. 66% plus one of the Congress to agree on something. And if, you can, if they can agree on one person, then you, you can get some kind of credibility that, hey, this person's just going to be fair and try to interpret the Constitution, not go on a leftist activist streak. And so uh, there's lots of other ideas to, for this. I, I'll give you some more of try to, how to try to weaken the court. The, uh, the folks on the left have been talking a very dangerous and destructive game of trying to pack the court, add seats to the court. The, te- technically, Congress can do that. Nine is not a number that's in the Constitution. The, the Congress can add seats and I believe take away seats. They can also change how the court works, by the way. Five, four decisions are quite common. This, the, uh, the, the Congress has the power to say, if you're overturning a law, it requires a 6-3 vote. And you, and you can limit it to that. Like if, if the duly elected members of a state legislature and their governor passed a law, if you want to overturn it, or Congress passes a law and the president signs it, if you're going to call it unconstitutional and overturn it, it's going to require 6-3. to three. They can do that. I don't see why they would it would at least weaken this body. Because what we have right now is five people can say to, let's go with South Carolina where I am, the 46 members of the Senate, the 121, I think it is, no, it's 124, 124 members of the House and the 46 members of the Senate in South Carolina, a supermajority of them could vote to put a a ban on abortion after 10 weeks gestation. After, After the child has been in the womb for 10 weeks, we could pass that. And this, it's very popular in our state. Our, our citizens want it. By the way, that law would be very popular throughout the Southeast. It would, be, it, it would fly in Utah, Montana, South Dakota, uh, Wyoming, all those places. It, it would go in Texas. Like, we would all be for that. And then five people on the Supreme Court that none of us voted for can just say, no, you can't do that. We're telling you no. That's too much power. We should weaken the court. The court has too much power. So that's another, there's other solutions. Um, You could term limit them. I would be for term limiting Supreme Court justices. I had another idea. It it was uh, making the threshold higher for the overturning of laws. Uh, And I can't remember what the other one was. Oh yeah, Um, revisiting. So the, uh, the, the courts can review laws that legislatures and governors or presidents pass well, Congress needs to be able to review their decisions. I don't know what that vote should be, if it should be simple majority in the Senate or the House or both, or if it needs to be a supermajority, but they need to be able to have congressional review. We have judicial review. Where we tell the judges they can do whatever they want. Well, we need to have congressional review over their decisions to overrule them. Okay, that's it on the court. I, the, I think it's important to actually get the, the history because I think that is what gets missed in all the emotionalism of this. Is there was a, there's a fight that's been going on, guys, since the 40s of from the left using the courts to impose their will on a populace that doesn't want it, or incre- increasingly the, the country moves left, but la- largely for that period of time, imposing ideas that the majority of the country doesn't want, and then the right finally in the early 2000s-ish started fighting back and saying, no, right, if you're, if you're going to use the court this way, then we're going to 
respond likewise. I'm going to take an early break and then come back for this. Um, I have a thought from the, that Black Lives Matter movement and a, a something I want to call a conspiracy. Uh, and then I had a conversation, uh, a political conversation here recently that I think was instructive on how we talk with one another. So I want to do that. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Core True Act Show. yucky doing an entire show on political things. I'm not used to that. I, I don't, I'm trying to look, think back at the last couple months. I, I, I have done less and less politics over the years. I think it's the, I think it's the moment we're in. COVID dominated a lot of the show this year, but I've been, uh, things around COVID did, but now, I don't know. We're in that time period. I, we'll get past it and then we can do some other things that I love. i I do love history. We got to do that, some of it, a little bit a minute ago with the history of religious liberty cases and some other Supreme Court cases and how we got here. And we talk about the, the movements in history last week. I'd love to do some more of that, do some more theology. I mean, there's been some incredible sermons I've heard recently from David Platt and Matt Chandler. I'd like to love to play those for you. But I, and in the moment we're in, I guess we'll be a little more political. All right, let me give you this. Uh, where should we start? Let's do this one. I had a discussion with a super-de-duper anti-Trump person. And as you you listen to the show, you know that I don't mind those people. I'm obviously not a fan. I have been so grateful for the policy that's come out of these four years. Not all of it. There are some exceptions. But I have been grateful for the policy, but certainly no love lost for the, for the person. And so uh, this person in particularly emotional, I think, um, has the, I don't remember the actual words, but basically, isn't Trump, isn't he just an evil demon? And I will say something like, man, yeah, I don't like, I don't like that guy at all. Uh, not a, not a fan of Biden either, uh, but certainly not a fan of, fan of him. So yeah, I, I, I understand. But, but, and then it, it, the response is something more like, but he's a racist and he's crazy and it gets further. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm telling you, I I don't think he believes anything at all. Like, he has no ideological core. He's a narcissist. He only believes in himself. It just just uh, it just happens to be that what benefits him right now benefits people on my ideological side. I mean, he's got some really terrible ideas about trade. I got a lot of things I could say negative about him. I know, I know what you mean. And then it's like something like, he tried to ban Muslims, and he's locking children in cages. Everything's on fire, and everything's going to, and we're all going to die. And... It occurs to me, like in these discussions, hey, you know I've not disagreed with you. You don't have to escalate. I didn't disagree with you any. I, I affirmed. Yeah, I, I, he's not a person I want to give any kind of adulation to. So, okay, let's let's move on. But that is not the moment we're in. The moment we're in is not. Oh yeah, okay, I agree. Let's move on. People are looking to have their feelings affirmed and not facts affirmed. This, and that's something for us to know go, going into any kind of political discussion. It's not good. It's not good that that's where we are, that people have uh, this really highly emotional reaction to what's going on. It, it muddies the waters and makes conversation harder. But I think it's a thing for all of us to know as we talk with people that might even disagree. A lot of people just want their feelings affirmed 
And so I think how I should have handled that is, is saying to that person, hey, I understand like how upset you are. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's cause for that level of upset and you're not getting any disagreement and let's, let's do something more productive than just be angry. And that's where we are. Just anger everywhere. Uh, it feels like what we need more of in politics when I have those discussions is we just need more Vulcans. I thought, I thought about like, what about the elections on the planet where Spock was from, from Star Trek? I bet those elections are awesome if they have them because everyone is so logical and rational and no one yells that's what we need more of. If we could just get a voting base of people that are like maybe majority Vulcan, our discourse, our conversations would be so much better if we would all just behave like the Vulcans from Star Trek. But that's not where we live. All right. That was the nerdiest, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Analogy I've ever, I've ever thought of. I didn't even plan that one. It just hit me. We should do... Vulcan elections. Okay, uh, what's the other one I wanted to get to? There's two more. Yeah, here we go. I don't know if you've seen some of the videos of the the, the, the protesters, mostly in Washington, D.C., sometimes it's in New York City, will, will, where they will accost outdoor diners, just walk up and start chanting at people and demanding they put up the black power fist or say black lives matter. This, this occurred to me. I have been talking a lot this year about how wokest leftism is a religion. It's a religion that's been set up against Christianity and, and against every other religion. It's also against Islam and Judaism. It, it's a whole different religion. It has all the trappings of religion. We've covered that. You can go back and listen to other episodes if you're interested in, in that. But it is a religion that is starting to remind me of Catholicism in the 1400s. That behavior is the Spanish Inquisition. This is like Ferdinand and Isabella was queen then, I think. But like the Spanish Inquisition is recant. Like if you won't, if you are saying something we don't believe, you will recant. And if you don't recant, we will literally torture you. If you want to just get grossed out, look at the torture methods of the Spanish, the Spanish Inquisition that the Catholics did. And then if you, after you recant, you will say what we say. You will say that the, that the Catholic Church is above all and totally, and, totally, uh, and to, totally authoritative. You will affirm the creeds of the Catholic Church. And if you don't, we'll wreck you. And as I see protesters, mostly from it's, it's, it's always Antifa or Black Lives Matter folks that are doing this. They, they just look like the Catholic Church of the 1400s. You will say what we have demanded of you. You will speak our slogan. You will make our hand gesture. Or we shall torture you. And then they sometimes will. They'll get violent. They'll wreck, they'll wreck your stuff. They are a religion, guys. I, just, I keep seeing other trappings of it in the leftist wokeism in the United States has now reached Spanish Inquisition level, and that's not good for any of us. That's actually quite quite troubling in every way. Uh, all right, then I think we have re- met. Yeah, this is where we want to go. Um, I am going to play for you a clip. No, let's, let's wait on the clip. Let's, let's make the point first. In this Black Lives Matter movement, uh, as it's developed, you might have noticed the development in me where right after the George Floyd killing uh, in, that was Memorial Day weekend, so I guess that is late May, 
I, I was quick to make sure everyone understood the distinction around Black Lives Matter. That the sentence is true and good and biblical. The organization is Marxist and evil. And the movement is fine. The, the movement is almost, almost exclusively peaceful. This is what I was saying at the time. And has some bad apples, but it, it, you got to think about protesters the same way you do about cops. That with cops, vast majority are great and not doing anything terrible, and a few do bad things. And also with Black Lives Matter protesters, you got to think of them the same way because vast majority are not doing anything. It's a small group. And so the, the sentence is good. Uh, Black Lives Matter, the sentence is good. The organization is Marxist and evil. And the movement is generally good with some bad apples. As we have progressed, the sentence stays true and biblical. The movement is still Marxist and evil. And the people that have now taken the Black Lives Matter movement over have moved it in a direction that it's, it's harder and harder to find any support. And that's hard for me because I want to. That's, that's deep in my heart. I want to be a part of movements that move towards equitable systems. Not equal outcomes, but equitable systems. Everyone equal under the law and having sim- as, as close to the same experiences as we can as we interact with our government and law enforcement. I want to be a part of that. And then this movement just continues that, that ratio of people that are doing violent things or looting or robbing, committing all kinds of different and various sins. These are sins in the public's public's space. It's harder and harder to support the movement. I'm coming to a point here, I promise. uh, This last thing in LA, out in Los Angeles, where this Prius is, this person just trying to get home, rolls into an intersection where there's a lot of Black Lives Matter uh, protesters and demonstrators and a person just wants to go home that's that's all I want I want to move my car through this intersection this intersection doesn't belong to you you people that are in it it doesn't belong to you in particular you didn't get it you didn't even get any kind of license or permit to do what you're doing you're just mucking up everyone else's life you are causing problems for everyone else and to every one of those protesters I need you to know you're not the center of the universe you don't get to muck everyone else's life up and this Prius just makes their right turn and tries to get out of there, they chase them down and, do, and are violent with these people because they drove through. The more and more you see that stuff, it's harder and harder to support the movement. And in particular, again, I, I like the outcomes. I, there, there's, there's outcomes I want here that the Black Lives Matter movement, not the organization, originally put forward that we want. But then you, you get the behaviors of the rioting, the looting, and the violence, but then you add on this, you add this on, and it's a problem. You add on that there seems to not actually be a termination point. What do you want? If I asked a rioter in the street, what do you want? What are we trying to get? I don't know that I'm going to get a coherent answer, and, and then if I do get the, the answer to end racism, well, I want that too. And we're not going to get that till the Lord returns. It is literally an impossibility. We, we will have racist people for th- out of 330 million. They're going to exist. So are you telling me you're just going to keep doing this? This is now your way of life for the rest of your life? We're just going to deal with unrest? You, if that's your goal, you've given an impossible goal, and therefore you're out of the street. We're going to move you on now. 
if you have if you have some specific policy prescriptions, things you want, I want to help you probably with, and there's probably some exception there. But if it's just now destruction for the face for the sake of it, it's just acting out on our anger. Well, no, we we've got a movement that's gotten out of hand, and there's no there's no place for it. It's also quite dangerous. It's a dangerous movement that's giving dangerous messages to people. Charles Barkley, the basketball player, former basketball player and now basketball commentator, he said it on, I guess, TNT. I'm going to play for you his audio. He got in a lot of trouble for it. People go after him on Twitter. But he, obviously, he doesn't care. But uh, And then I have some comments on this. So what I'm saying here is the movement is getting out of hand to a spot where it's hard to support it. And it's also doing something that's dangerous. And this is where I want to get in that conspiracy theory. There's a conspiracy theory that Black Lives Matter has put out that it is an unbelievably dangerous thing to be black in America. That it is a, the state of nature for a, a black person in America is you are being hunted and killed all the time. We have all kinds of horrific anecdotes. We have examples and anecdotes that are terrible statistically, that does not bear out. It is false. And that hurts people. That conspiracy theory, that you, it's a, it's a surprise every time you come home and you didn't get murdered. That hurts people. That hurts people's lives. There's about 14 million black Americans, and we are talking one of them every day is, go, is going to be murdered, and not, very, actually very rarely by police, so we're, we're turning situations that are bad. They need to be, to be rectified. Justice needs to be served in these cases. I, I, think, I think back a couple years ago to the one in Dallas with Botham Jean, a man shot in his own apartment. Well, the, the justice that happened there with that cop being punished the way, I think, a, I think it was she was, that was a female cop. That's a, that, that justice needs to be served. The justice that was served against uh, the, the, that's in the process with the mod Arbery's murderers. That's these are good. This is good. All the justice needs to be served. But then to turn that into a conspiracy theory that says if you leave your house, you'll die. That hurts people. And Charles Barkley responds to that as well. I want you to hear him do it. You know, I hear these fools on TV talking about defund the police and things like that. We need police reform and prison reform and things like that because you know who ain't going to defund the cops white neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods so that now he's not saying that particularly articulately but what he's saying is police are if you defund the police they're still going to protect rich and white neighborhoods the neighborhoods they're going to leave will be black neighborhoods and that is very bad news for black neighborhoods the notion they keep saying that i'm like wait a minute we just gonna leave who, who are black people supposed to call ghostbusters when we have crime in our neighborhoods we need police reform but like i say white people especially rich white people they're always gonna have cops so we need to stop that defund or abolish the cops crap it's a great point we, we have the statistics to show when you have more cops in an area, fewer deaths happen. Fewer crime happens. You, you have, of course, horrific examples of police either behaving badly or absolute immorally, evil ways, sometimes mistakes. But all of the evidence shows that minority neighborhoods get safer when you put more cops in them. Uh, Low-income neighborhoods neighborhoods are safer when you put more cops in them. You know, there was this fairly viral-ish viral video, I think, 
one of the late night hosts played it of a African American woman, a black woman, just screaming about not uh, not. Uh, people not calling the police because uh, what are we supposed to do with crime? Because when we call the police, they kill us. And in, I guess some anger came up in me first, but then there was a lot of compassion because I just wanted to say to that woman, you've been so deceived. You've been so lied to that you think you can't call the police because they'll, they'll kill you. It is a lie. You know, I think it gets it gets missed that you know, this this last thing that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with Jacob Blake. The police were there because a woman called the police. Jacob Blake had, in the past, digitally read that as a part of the hand had digitally raped this woman, and when he showed back up, she called the police. She was terrified. Who else she supposed to call? And she didn't end up dead, guys. There's millions of interactions between black people and the police every year, and no one ends up dead. We've got a police problem. It's true. We've got a police brutality problem. But this conspiracy theory that cops are just out, white people are just out killing black people at random, it's it's like a sport for white people and cops. That's hurting people. The same way that the QAnon conspiracy ended up having some nut job roll into some kind of pizza shop in Washington, D.C. and shooting people, the same way that sometimes conspiracy theories on the internet lead people to do dangerous things, this is a conspiracy conspiracy theory that's leading people to do violence. Or at least not call the police and then violence is done against them. And it's a conspiracy theory that folks on the left and then black leaders, they need to be the ones stepping up and saying so. That you can call the police. That 99.9999% of the time, no one dies from calling the police. We have run out of time, but I will be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.